Bugsy Siegel, Frank Collada, Frank Costello, Mo Sedway, Mo Dalitz. It reads like a list of the Walk of Fame. Well, the Walk of Fame amongst mobsters. Back in 1951, the famous senator from Tennessee, Estes Kefauver, decided to try and rid the world of a scourge, of a plague that plagued the world. And he tried to start, and he tried to attack Las Vegas. Americans had seen nothing like it before. Not in their own living room, not anywhere else in the world. Three years before the Army McCarthy hearings, with 22 years before Watergate, the Kefauver Committee hearings in the winter of 1951 brought a parade of gamblers, hoodlums, crooked sheriffs, and organized crime figures out from the shadows to sit and testify, testify before the White House Committee's hot lights and television cameras. All courtesy, this is all courtesy of my notes and the Smithsonian's websites. Smithsonian specifically, actually. Housewives were glued to their sets day after day, while in bar rooms and cafeterias, men gathered on their lunch breaks to witness the proceedings. <clears throat> Stores and offices across the country piped in day-long radio broadcasts, colorful criminals sweating and tapping their fingers nervously seemed to step off the set of Hollywood gangster movies, speaking in broken English under oath about their activities. Some just sat in stony silence, refusing, as one witness says, to criminate themselves. To criminate themselves, to incriminate themselves. All of it came courtesy of a deliberate speaking. Endless, polite, southern senator in hornroom glasses named Estes T. Kefauver, chairing the Senate Committee to investigate crime and interstate commerce, the Tennessee Democrat organized a barnstorming tour across the country, handing down subpoenas from New York to New Orleans, to Detroit to Los Angeles, and sweeping into local courtrooms to expose thugs, politicians, and, and corrupt law enforcement agents. The tour began quietly in January of 1951, but by February, in a serene post-war America, where house, house and apartment doors were not always locked, Kefauver fever gripped the nation, and the perception of a ubiquitous undercrime, underground crime wave added to the country's anxieties over communism and nuclear confrontation during the Cold War. Born in 1903, Estes Kefauver studied at the University of Tennessee and at Yale University where he received his law degree in 1927. He returned to Tennessee to practice law. Taking an interest in finance and taxation, he married a Scottish woman, Nancy Pigott, and started a family that would include four children. Kefauver was elected to the House of Representatives in 1939 and re-elected four times. His support for President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal legislation made him stand out in conservative Tennessee. K. 
Kefauver then made a bid for the Senate seat in 1948, running against E.H. E. Crump, the mayor of Memphis and boss of Tennessee's Democratic Party. After Crump accused, accused Kefauver of being a raccoon-like communist sympathizer, Kefauver calmly donned the coonskin cap for his next speech, and he said, I may, I may be a pet coon, but I'm not Boss Crump's pet coon. Pardon the usage at the time and the word usage there. Just using his quote. With his new cap, which he was later depicted wearing in a portrait on the cover of Time, Kefauver was elected to the U.S. Senate and assumed the office at a time when newspapers were beginning to report on, it, on extensive political corruption and government ties to organized crime. In 1950, he introduced a Senate resolution to establish a committee to investigate labor racketeering and interstate commerce. In January of the next year, the Kefauver Committee took to the road, crisscrossing the country to ferret out likely targets who could be exposed. Lawyers for the committee arrived ahead of the chairman terrifying local, local law enforcement as the committee drew up subpoenas and prepared for hearings to be broadcast on both television and radio. Kefauver would then arrive, as he did in the committee's first stop in New Orleans, and began his questioning of, say, corrupt sheriffs, who would admit that they did not ex exactly enforce the law when it came to gambling and prostitution in the parishes of Louisiana. Diamond Jim Moran, the owner of La Louisiane restaurant in New Orleans, took advantage of the free publicity and reportedly plugged his restaurant, which was teeming with illegal slot machines. Food for kings, he said. When the committee arrived in Detroit two weeks later, two local stations interrupted their regularly scheduled programming to cover two days of hearings featuring, as the Daily Boston Globe put it, a parade of hoodlums of every description, the records of their dealings with murderers, dope peddlers, gamblers, and gamblers. It was estimated that nine out of ten televisions had been tuned in. The general manager of WWJ-TV, where the station's switchboard was jammed with appreciative callers, said the hearings were the most terrible or the most terrific television show Detroit had ever seen. In St. Louis, the city's squirming police commissioner said he couldn't recall any details about his net worth before his life as a public official. Then the betting commission, then then the betting commissioner, James J. Carroll, refused to testify in television, stating that it was an invasion of privacy. This is a public hearing, and anyone has and anyone has a right to be here. Kefauver told him. Mr. Carroll, I order you to testify. The whole proceeding outrages, outrages my sense of proprietary. The whole proceeding outrages my sense of propriety. Propriety. Carroll shouted back. I don't expect to be made an object of ridicule as long as the television is on. Kefauver warned Carroll that he'd been cited for contempt by the Senate, but Carroll refused to answer any questions meandering nervously around the courtroom. The argument was captured by television cameras, as Carroll simply picked up his coat and began to walk out. Television, Kefauver said calmly with a smile, 
is recognized medium is a recognized medium of public information, along with radio and newspapers. We've had several witnesses who seemed much less timid and ex- and experienced. I refuse to permit the arrangements for this hearing to be dictated by a witness. The bars and taverns in St. Louis did more business than they did when the World Series of Broadcast when the World Series of Broadcast three months earlier. But the key fiber hearings were only beginning to capture the public's attention. The committee went west to LA, taking testimony from a handcuffed Alan Smiley, one of mobster Bugsy Siegel's former associates. Then Kefauver headed north to San Francisco, uncovering a vast pattern of illegal payouts from lobbyists to state legislatures. legislators. The hearings on the West Coast drew the largest audiences recorded in daytime television. Which, if you think about it, being in hearings and uh, something that was big at the time, organized crime, it doesn't really surprise me, or shouldn't really surprise anyone, that that was as big of a draw as it was. By the time the Kefauver Committee arrived in New York in March of 1951, five of the city's seven television stations were carrying live proceedings broadcast to dozens of stations across the country. The entire metropolitan area had become obsessed with the drama. There were Kefauver block parties, and attendance on Broadway wilted. For eight straight days, mobsters were dragged before the committee. None of the witnesses made the impact that Frank Costello did, who started out by refusing to testify because, he said, the microphones would prohibit him from privately consulting with his attorney sitting next to him. Sounds just like a mobster. Or anyone who sounds like they don't want to incriminate themselves. It's kind of like, just they want to have someone else there who can check them, keep them in check, or, you know, make them rethink what they're about to say, or kind of help them guard their words. Kefauver arranged a compromise. The television cameras would, be, would not show his face but only focus on his hands. Never mind the newsreel cameras captured Costello's entire never mind the newsreel cameras captured Costello's entire face and body as he sp- as he spoke. The highlights of which were shown on newscasts later that evening. On live television, the cameras zoomed in on the mobster's meaty hands as he nervously fingered the eyeglasses resting on the table or moved to dab a handkerchief to his off-screen face as he dodged a question and a question after question after question, making him appear the more sinister to daytime viewers. Sorry, I kind of... The microphone kind of slipped out of my hand there, so sorry about that, everyone. Bear with me for a few seconds. I apologize. I thought I had a hold of the microphone and it just slipped out of my hands. Sorry! He kind of seemed, as he was fingering the eyeglasses, as you heard, his, he and dabbing his face, he just, and not just him and the fact of, that he was Frank Costello, but anyone who looks nervous like that, or like he's fingering their glasses or dabbing their face, it just looks like you're hiding something. It looks really mysterious. And it just, it, 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 gives, the, it gives the impression that you're guilty before you even say anything. 
When asked by the committee to name one thing he'd done for his country, Costello snapped, Paid my tax! The Los Angeles Times said it was the greatest TV show television had ever aired. And Variety estimated the ratings were among the highest ever achieved to that time. Costello was a tough act to follow, but Kefauver found the star of the show in Virginia Hill Hauser. And if anyone who rec- recognizes that name knows from previous episodes, knows her connection to organized crime. Bugsy, her boyfriend, Bugsy Siegel. An Alabama-born former waitress and mall to the late Bugsy Siegel. Wearing a mink cape, silk gloves, and a large hat, and with a presence of a movie star, Hauser strutted, out, strutted into the U.S. courthouse in Foley Square. She wasn't about to let some stuffy senators from Washington, D.C. rough her up the way they had Costello. In a defiant tone in her nasal voice, House Hill, Virginia Hill, Hauser, in, her, in a defiant tone in her nasal voice, Hauser regaled the committee with remarkable stories of friendship with fellas who gave her gifts from, and money. But as to, who, as to how those men came into their money, she said, she didn't know anything about anybody. She and Bugsy had had a fight in the Las Vegas hotel. She said after, I hit a girl at the Flamingo and he told me I wasn't the lady. When she finished, she had to fight her way past the throng of scribes, slapping one female reporter in the face and cursing at the photographers. I hope the atom bomb falls on every one of you, she shouted as she left the building. Hauser soon after hopped a plane and fled the country to evade tax evasion charges by the IRS. After seeing Hauser's appearance at the hearings, columnist Walter Winchell contemplated the the seemingly timeless paradox of reality television when he wrote, When the chic Virginia Hill unfolded her amazing life story, many a young girl must have wondered, Who really knows best, mother or Virginia Hill? After, after After doing all the things called wrong, there she was, on top of the world, with her beautiful home in Miami Beach, a handsome husband, and a baby. The hearings made Estes Kefauver so popular that he decided to seek the, the Democratic Party's presidential nomination in 1952. Remarkably, Kefauver beat the incumbent, Harry Truman, in the, newspaper, new, new, in the New Hampshire primary, leading Truman to abandon his campaign for renomination. Although Kefauver won the majority of the Democratic primaries, he lost the nomination to Adlai Stevenson, who then lost the general election to General Dwight D. Eisenhower. And even though Kefauver ran as Stevenson's vice presidential candidate in the Democratic's losing 1956 bid, it was the crime hearings that would, that would cement the Tennessee senator's legacy. He, because those, those crime hearings, and because of all that, that is what people know Estes Kefauver for. That's why his name, maybe not in the rest of the world, but that's why his name is so famous and so well known and so jumps out to everyone, especially in Vegas and in Nevada. That's why he's so well known. 
The committee ultimately produced an 1,100-page report and exposed millions of Americans to organized crime for the first time. But in fact, the Kefauver hearings had little impact in the cities the committee visited. He and his men swept in and then just as quickly went out, leaving behind titillating news coverage and unforgettable television experience. The committee's recommendation on how to clean up organized crime were largely ignored, and the crime syndicates went back to business as usual, often with the same shadowy characters from the hearings still in control. There is the Mob Museum in Vegas, in downtown Vegas. The Mob Museum has a large exhibit, a large area dedicated to the Kefauver hearings, where you see where the Kefauver hearings occurred, where they were held when Estes and the other members of the committee visited Vegas and visited Nevada. And you see where that you see where all that occurred. It's it's an incredibly amazing thing, and it's just if you're as nuts about Vegas as I am, you kind of it throws you for a loop. It it kind of puts you it shakes you a little bit. You're like you're sitting in the room where the Kefauver hearings took place in Nevada, and it's really just really really awesome and really really cool. The Kefauver Committee, as it became commonly known, interviewed hundreds of witnesses in 14 cities over the course of 15 months in the first government attempt to expose the extent of the breadth of organized crime in America. The, the nation was just, it was riveted, completely just drawn and sucked in and pulled into the, the history that, that happened during these, the, these proceedings. Excuse me, allergy cough coming up. <coughs> attack of, you know how it is, the attack of allergy coughs. Thank you for all sitting through me and hopefully covered some of your ears while that hit so I didn't blast out your eardrums. It was just, it's, it was the whole, the whole story of it was just very, very, very interesting and very, very in-depth. Organized, like for example, organized crime was a subject of a large number of widely related articles in several major newspapers and magazines in 1949. Several local crime commissions in major cities and states had also covered extensive corruption of the political process by organized crime. Many cities and states called for federal help in dealing with organized crime, yet federal law provided few tools for the U.S. government to do so. In particular, many cities and states were concerned with the way organized crime had infiltrated interstate commerce and how it threatened to hold the American economy hostage through labor, rac through labor racketeering. In, on January 5, 1950, Estes Kefauver introduced a resolution that would allow the Senate Committee on the Judiciary to investigate organized crime's role in interstate commerce. However, the Senate Committee on Interstate and Foreign Commerce already claimed jurisdiction over that issue. A compromise resolution was, was substituted, which established a special committee of five senators, whose membership would be drawn from both the Judiciary and the Commerce Committee. 
debate over the substitute resolution was bitter and partisan, and voting on the resolution extremely close. On May 3, 1950, Vice President Alvin W. Barkley, sitting in his role as President of the United States Senate, cast a tie-breaking vote, and a special committee to investigate crime and interstate commerce was established. Senator Kefauver served as the, as the committee's first chair. Kefauver then relinquished the committee chair on April 3, 1951, and Senator O'Connor assumed the chairmanship until the committee folded on September 1, 1951. Barkley, as president of the Senate, was empowered to choose the committee's members. There were Kefauver, Herbert O'Connor, Lester C. Hunt, Alexander Wiley, and Charles W. Toby. The Kefauver Committee held the hearings 14 in 14 major cities across the U.S., where the 600 witnesses testified. Many of the committee's hearings were televised live on national television to large audiences, again, trying to make money or trying to, I guess, reality television before reality television became a thing. Reality television before reality television. Trying to make benefit and trying to trying to get ratings off of real life and judge what you may choice choose what you may off of what it just sounds that just sounds weird it just sounds wrong some of the names of the more more, more notorious figures who appeared before the committee were Tony Joe Batters Accardo Louis Little New York Campania, Campana, Campania, Mickey Cohen, Willie Moretti, Frank Costello, Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik, Meyer Lansky, Paul the Waiter Rika, Virginia Hill, and four and four of Irish mob bosses Enoch Nucky Johnson, Nucky Johnson's former policeman in Atlantic City, were also called fourth. Kefauver became the nationally recognized, became a nationally recognized figure. A Nucky, Nucky is um, Enoch Nucky Johnson. Was Boardwalk Empire had to do something about him, and Steve Buscemi played him in in Boardwalk Empire. It's his his name. I I, I didn't think to his name. I didn't think he was. I didn't think he would, his name jumped up to me, or his name kind of jumped out at me, but he, he kind of, it, he kind of just jumped to, to the, just jumped it forward in my mind. Many of the Kefauver Far- Committee's hearings were aimed at proving that a Sicilian-Italian organization based on strong family ties centrally controlled a vast organized crime conspiracy in the United States. But the committee never came close to justifying such a claim. Rather, the committee uncovered extensive evidence that people of all nationalities, ethnicities, and even religious, even religions operated locally controlled, loosely organized crime syndicates at the local level. The committee's final report, issued on April 17, 1951, including 22 recommendations for the federal government and 7 recommendations for state and local authorities. Among its recommendations were the creation of a whack racket squad within the United States Department of Justice, 
a racket squad. You say racket squad to me, I'm picturing people running around a tennis court with rackets in their hand. Get it? A racket squad. Sorry. Sorry, just just bad humor there. Sorry, jumped in there. The establishment of a permanent crime commission at the federal level. The expansion of the jurisdiction of the Judiciary Committee to hold, to include interstate organization, to include interstate organized crime. Federal studies into the sociology crime. A ban on betting via radio, television, telegraph, and telephone. The establishment of state and local commissions and a request that the Justice Department investigate and prosecute 33 named individuals as suspected leaders of organized crime in the United States. The committee's work led to several significant outcomes. Among the most notable was an admission by J. Edgar Hoover, director, and anyone who knows, anyone who knows that name knows exactly what I'm talking about, just, just like that, when I say J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI. The National Organized Crime Syndicate did not did exist, and the FBI had done little about it. Legislative proposals, state ballot referenda, legalizing gambling went down to defeat over the next few years due to revelations of organized crime's involvement in the gambling industry, and more than 70 crime commissions were established at the state and local level to build on the Kefauver Committee's work. The Kefauver Committee was the first to suggest that civil law be expanded and used to combat organized crime. Congress responded to the call and in 1970 passed the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act as a direct response to the committee's recommendation. The, you can see where, yes, so yes, Vegas did get its start in organized a lot of the Vegas that came along today and a lot of the Vegas we know today did get its start in organized crime it, that's it kind of it came from that and kind of got known from that and came from there but when like for example going back to Bugsy Siegel the technically you could you could say that Vegas didn't actually get its start didn't actually start in organized crime because Bugsy's flamingo was actually bought from a guy named Billy Wilkerson. And Billy owned several clubs and several establishments, establishments along the Sunset Strip in LA. And Billy wanted to bring his style and his desire for his, his establishments, what he had been proved, proven to do, out to the Vegas area where a lot of things were, were developing and growing up. And Billy wanted to do that. And that's what he was trying to do. And Bugsy came in, and Bugsy kind of muscled him out of the Flamingo and forced his way in. So, and Bugsy took over the Flamingo. Now, several arguments can be made how Bugsy went way over budget, and way, which got Meyer Lansky and other guys ticked off at him. He went way over the top. But a lot of arguments can be made that Vegas didn't actually get its start in the mob it didn't get its start from where it came from in the mob that's most famously what it's known for as far as its beginnings are concerned but people like billy wilkerson and it start from as a train stop place in around 1905 from people who had moved out to what was then called the boulder dam 
Workers had then moved out from all across the country seeking jobs. They moved out to what was called the Boulder Dam, which is now called the Hoover Dam. They moved out to start working on the billions and billions of dollars, billions and billions of jobs that had established in construction to build the Boulder Dam. And they were confined to the explosions and living in the dam area, pun intended. And they were confined living in that area, and they would go from the Boulder Dam to to their to their houses, to their encampment in a near in the nearby town. And they could they were given two choices: they could sit in their home, sit in their villages in their areas, and play cards and drink and have time with the family and sit and relax or they could blow their paycheck and blow off some steam go a couple miles away into town into a dusty little town where where nothing seemed to be restricted all vices and all urges that they had could be sated could be could they could take advantage of called called las vegas and they decided that this is what they wanted to do they wanted to have an out. They wanted to have a place of relaxation. And so they went into Vegas, and Vegas became more and more established because the people who had been, like I said, the people who had been building the Boulder Dam had sought release and sought a vacation expression, so they went into Vegas. And when the dam was completed, the Vegas tourism, Vegas market kind of dried up a little bit. And people had come back into Vegas saying, well, how do we make this back? How do we bring this back? And how do we make all this stuff come back? And they kind of, and people who then decided to create businesses or want to make more businesses decided to come up with whatever they could. And then the mob kind of came in by kind of like how Bugsy did, kind of muscling their way in and kind of just forcing their way in. And to them, I get where it's coming from. I get what they're saying because they were forced out of illegal dens and illegal gambling practices in New York and Florida and Chicago and all over the country. They were forced out of that. And a famous mobster once said he admired and adored Estes Kefauver because Kefauver made him from being an illegal gambler, an illegal criminal to a law-abiding, upstanding, extremely rich and extremely profitable citizen by taking his, going from his illegal practices in Florida and wherever wherever he was born and grew up and, and conducted business to becoming, to, to Nevada and Vegas to raise legitimacy and becoming a law-abiding legitimate man, a legitimate businessman. Now there is a lot more, a lot more on this subject and a lot more on all this. It's just really, really cool to learn like I said, I love and adore Las Vegas, and it's really, really awesome, and really, really cool to learn all about this and to study this. And it's just, I would, I would encourage everyone. And I've said repeatedly, I am by no means an authority on anything, especially. I mean, I've been to Vegas a lot, and I do love Vegas dearly, um, and I've studied it a lot, and it's really cool to me. But I would by no means take anything I'm saying as the authority to anything. But, you know, you need some pointer things to do outside of Vegas, Red Rock Canyon, Valley of Fire, Hoover Dam, all sorts of cool stuff. I'm happy to give you tips and give you a thing, check things out and give you places to visit. But I am not an authority. So it's just thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for a little bit more extra, a little bit extra on the end here. And 
Thank you all for listening. Hang in there. Stay tuned. Hey, guys. Check out the best cruising podcast and YouTube channel for everything cruising needed, everything cruising enjoyed, everything you love about cruising. They're experts, they know their stuff, and they're beyond awesome. You'll love the podcast, you'll love their YouTube channel. They're the best cruising podcast out there. Check out Fantastic Cruising on the podcast, on your favorite podcast devices, and favorite podcast programs. And also check out Fantastic Studios on YouTube. They are beyond great. Give Matt and Kimbra a follow. Give them a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and every other podcast you choose. They are beyond awesome, and you won't be disappointed. You won't be upset in any way, shape, or form. Want to go to Vegas? Visit the best places all around the Strip and all around downtown or all around the surrounding areas? Check out the best vlogs for Vegas anywhere on YouTube at Brar Frederick over on YouTube. B-R-O-R Frederick, F-R-E-D-R-I-K. Over on YouTube, go over to Brar Frederick. Subscribe to his channel. Click that bell icon. Click that, hit those, those like, those like up thumbs. Give, give Brar a follow. Give Brar a look. You'll really love what you're seeing. He's an awesome streamer, the best Vegas streamer, and the best thing to watch while you're in Vegas, before you go to Vegas, just to experience Vegas as a whole. Please join me in supporting and giving to the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project. When you donate to the Pride Foundation, you join thousands of supporters building a better, safer, more equitable world for LGBTQIA people and their families. Every gift, whether $1 or $1,000, makes an impact for real people and ripples outward into our communities. There are many different ways to join and help the fight. Also go on to their websites for the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project and donate and help in any way possible. The Trevor Project offers support and help for LGBTQIA youth all over the country and all over the world. Please show them some love and give them some support.